potential legend of Shigeru Miyamoto fighting back the fat cats, the illusion of simplicity, the Super FX2 chip, and the bookends of the SNES, creating an emotional connection between characters that do not speak, and the perfect utility of the worst sound effect in the world. I'm the Well-Read Mage, and this is MageCast. It's baby game time, y'all. We're traveling through time to Mario's early years with Super Mario World 2, Yoshi's Island. And here to help carry the conversation along with me is Criterion27, a streamer focusing on nuance and the underappreciated points in video games. Whereas I played Yoshi's Island when it released, Criterion, Crit or Critter as he's known, played it just five years ago. Nostalgia is once again put to the test here on MageCast, and much is said about the Twilight Zone mysteries that lie between the realms of objectivity and subjectivity, between design and observation. It's a surprisingly complicated discussion, actually, for a game that appears, at least on the surface, to be so infantile. MageCast is the podcast for the lonely, for those who miss the simple pleasure of a shared dialogue. MageCast is the podcast for conversationalists in a world where we've already stopped listening to each other. As ever, you can help support MageCast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the pixels, where episodes are offered in early access before going live for the public. You can also learn more at thepixels.com, that's the-pixels.com, or find me on Twitter and Twitch at the Well-Read Mage. Now, let's start the show. Hello, my friends. What a warm and cheery song to start this show with i am sitting here with someone who i've wanted to talk with uh for quite a while but i feel like i've really just met recently um but it's one of those is he's one of those people that like you meet somebody for the first time and you're like i feel like we connect on a lot of different topics i feel like we think the same way so really delighted here to sit down with someone you might know as crit or critter criterion 27 how are you, my friend? I'm doing absolutely well, my friend. How are you? And the feeling is 100% mutual because <laughs> I've been following your content for years now. And the fact that I get to do, well, my first official podcast with someone who I've looked up to for so long, I consider a great privilege and just humbling. So I'm just happy to be here. Man, uh, you're fantastic. I, and, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier. It, it's been a, a challenging it might be a good word, a uh, couple of years for me in the creative sphere. And so running into you and realizing that there's people reading things that I write and getting something out of it is to me humongously encouraging. So I just want to say to you, thank you very much for your kind words that you've said on your stream. Thanks for just consuming the content too. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, it's absolutely my pleasure. And I still remember the first time I read your Chrono Trigger review, and I just couldn't stop thinking about it for the entire day <laughs> because it just hit a note with me of how I wanted to view video games. And, you know, it just feels good to be able to be in a situation where despite things being difficult in many different areas, for I think the two of us, hmm. we can just sit down and have a conversation about things that we love. Yes. And that, that to me is the, the really the best thing about gaming communities. Um, something that we'd mentioned previously on MageCast talking about fractal communities, 
Um, the plus side of fractal communities is you begin to develop, uh, you know, these separate pockets of communities, but then there's, there's overlap. There's, there's areas where those cross and interact. Uh, and sometimes you find that there are people out there interested in doing the same things and talking about the same things. And so that to me is like, I mean, that's amazing that it's so it's so inspiring to think that we don't have to toil alone. We don't have to talk about these things that we're passionate about alone. So you mentioned, uh, you know, how to view video games. Maybe there's a little bit you could you could just discuss along those lines. So like how how, how personally or how do you video view video games personally? For me, it's always been a journey about my emotions and how I view different artistic mediums, whether it be film, whether it be television, whether it be video games, and try to find something that connects it all together. And when I was growing up, the most time I spent with was with my Nintendo 64, Hmm. my PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2. And as I got older, and I started to get more into film, directors, shows, and trying to be more, I don't know, try to develop my own understanding. I was sort of looking at these games I was playing mm-hmm. and saying there's more, there's something more there in its design, in its music, in its story. And it related a lot to my own journey, especially like watching film. And that's kind of why I've embraced playing games again, because I try to find what intersects there. Yes. It's interesting then to, you know, as children, uh, we were talking about this in, in my community as well. Uh, take super Mario all-stars for, for example. Uh, when we were kids, I didn't notice the difference between super Mario all-stars physics and the original NES super Mario games physics. It just, to me, I just consumed them in real time. And it was fun. You know, I was just like, oh, whole Mario game. Yes, that was <laughs> exactly. all that was happening in my brain. And when you replay them as an adult, because you've developed that muscle of discernment. Yeah, and I you, think there's a real beauty in that. You, you begin to realize and look at things and make observations that you couldn't as a child. I think that really there's beauty in both, right? There's there and any. Oh, absolutely. Any virtue can become a vice to an extreme, right? So like. As children, we just had pure amusement, like the ability to just shut our brains off and just enjoy something with pure immediacy. And like sometimes I I wish I could do that, you know. Oh, I trust me, I know exactly what you're feeling. Yes, yes. And then as adult as adults, like, you know, you can you can develop your anal- analytical capabilities to an extent that you can really begin to get passionate about the design you mentioned, the the architecture, the craft that goes into these various different art forms. And that provides a whole new fascinating realm of exploration. Uh, I definitely agree. Yeah. So and I, think, I, I feel oh. like I, de- I derailed your whole, your whole train of thought there. I'm <laughs> no, sorry. that lies in perfectly what I was thinking. And I think with the analytical part that you develop as you get older there's something in which you're able to tap into your own childhood memory 
that makes you be able to revisit those things from a different angle that makes you better understand yourself. I remember my first, like, I don't know, call it RPG experience, but I played a game called Legend of Lagaya. Oh, yeah. And yeah. when I was a young, young kid, when it first came out, I was just, I fell in love with the whole story and environment. And then I kind of forgot about it for so many years. And then a few months ago, I decided to kind of look it up again. And as I connected more with the story, the environment, this, and just so many things, I feel like I had a better understanding of myself when I was like six years old or seven. And I think that right there is why I want to do what I do. To think about learning more about oneself through reconnecting with those things from the past. That's really valuable. I mean, you can certainly see why retro gaming has become a thing. It's really an exploration, not just of things from the past, but ourselves from the past as well. hundred percent. Definitely. So you're a streamer. Every time I've come into your stream, you've been playing some good stuff. <laughs> so you've been playing Chrono Trigger <laughs> recently. Yes. Been frustrated a little bit, but I have been yes. playing it. Yes. And when it comes to the games that I've decided to play, I've learned streaming that there was a really bad habit I had when I was a kid where whenever I needed to play something that required concentration, I go into a deep silence mode. Like, okay, mm. I got to figure this out. I got to just and do this in my brain. And since I've started streaming and I've wanted to bring out discussions from more, I don't know, a nuance, new nuances, different angles, I realize, oh my God, my gameplay, what I'm trying to talk is uh, not always stellar. Yeah, <laughs> But it's great because just having community feedback and being able to have others take the journey with you is something that I miss so dearly because it just brings me back to that time where I used to just be with my friends playing a game. And it wasn't always a multiplayer game, but like a single player one. Growing up too, I had a, I had a younger brother, uh, 15 years younger than me. So he used to watch me play a lot of games as well. And so there's that element for me as well, that like it feels like just playing a game with somebody, but they're watching. But I absolutely know what you mean when you talk about your gameplay starting to lack because your focus shifts to, uh, you know, to chat and in engaging and knowing when to pause the game because the chat is is becoming really lively. Uh, that's a that's a real tough balancing act. Uh, I'm also new to streaming. Well, we found out that that you started in August and I started in June. That's amazing. I had amazing. No Almost yeah. the same time. Yeah, crazy. And I think for me, I also realized that I used to always watch my brother playing games growing up. And I'm now starting to go through a library of games where for the first time I'm playing them. And I don't even remember that I'm the one doing it because I used to watch him do it and live vicariously versum. <laughs> so it's just an interesting experience. That's crazy. So and playing through Chrono Trigger, now you're you're right there near the end. Uh this is not your first playthrough, correct? It is not my first playthrough, but I did okay. not complete it the first time that I did it. Oh, okay. Interesting. And the last time I was in, you were having this very real, uh, very honest conversation, the kind of conversation that I think does not happen often enough. There's a lot of, uh, in the gaming creative world, uh, there's a lot of conversation about hype. 
definitely a lot of conversation about nostalgia, perhaps the flip side of the coin of hype. Uh, a lot of, you know, this game is amazing. It's the best game ever, or this game is a dumpster fire. But in between all of that, there's all of these very honest and real conversations to be had about real experiences that happen with the games. And so you were having this discussion with your community that I thought was just amazing about what frustration is and what causes frustration with games because you yourself were feeling frustrated, but the fact you, the fact that you stopped the game and talked through that, I thought was completely admirable. Uh, I don't see oh, that very often at all. No. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think I got to a certain age in my life where I realized that frustration is something that is always shamed upon because it makes you either look weak or it's just bringing out a side of you that you don't want other people to see. And I was kind of in this situation where I was getting frustrated with a game that I think clearly laid out what it expected from me. and there were just other things on my mind that I was putting into the experience that was kind of distracting me. Mm -hmm. And when I took a step back and said, okay, now hold on, let me go to a, my just chatting screen and just see what it is that I'm feeling. I realized that in frustration, in those moments where you just want to just, oh, this game's driving me crazy there's something about yourself that you learn, you can learn from that. And it's nothing to be ashamed from because again, we're people that feel multiple things at the same times. And I think it comes out all the time in games and not just games, really well-crafted games because they make you feel a multitude of things in story in gameplay and just the lighting, the design and now that I'm getting into my late 20s now, I want to be able to discuss that publicly because I feel like I can learn something about myself and also learn from other people in that moment. And let's be honest. I think that there's a there's a very strong vein of, uh, of pseudo-machoism, let's call it, in gaming. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. there's a lot of flexing and... <laughs> A lot of comparison, uh, a lot of just alpha male behavior in in the gaming world, uh, and being honest about emotions is absolutely not a, a part of that. Oh, exactly. That exactly. Yeah. So you're you're fighting against the culture in that respect. <laughs> yeah, and it's something I've been fighting since I was a kid. I was someone who was very underweight and not mm. very masculine and was exposed to a lot of different cultures. I is the best way to put it in games and television shows. Toonami was always my thing when I was a mm. kid. So I had that exposure to those dramatic anime shows like Gundam wing, Yu Yu Hakusho that embraced emotional moments in their characters, male, female, anything in between. And I feel like it instinctually taught me to not only embrace it, but to put it out there. And as I got older, I just 
would see people who would have that sense of machoism that would try to hide how they're feeling mm -hmm. and then have that one moment where they break down. Because when you hide from yourself from too long, I always believe that can only last for so long. Yeah, I know. I, I got to agree with that. Uh, well, I mean, I can see why you're your stream is growing. I can see why people appreciate coming in to, to hang out with you because you're honest at that base level and would that more people were like that. Now, as we, it's <laughs> the, I don't want to say irony. The funny thing now that strikes me as we get into our subject here is, you know, we're talking about, Oh, there's machoism out there. Uh, there's alpha male behavior out there. And so let's talk about a, a literal baby game. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> talk about as, you know, as simple as it gets in terms right. of the story. <laughs> Mage cast. Not a trigger, not a no, fantasy. No. <laughs> now, um, so I, wait, before we jump into that though, um, so you, you're, have you finished Chrono Trigger at the point of this recording? No, I have not. No, okay. But you're and really I'm still close. Very close. Yeah. Very, very close. You're right there. Still at doing the end. one side quest and then okay. getting right to the end. Okay. Uh yeah, because I saw you fighting the son of sun, I I think. And I was like, this guy's like, yeah, and right I just there. finished that part. Um okay. Cool. Well, I, I would definitely love to hear your thoughts when you, once you finish. Um it all started for you. You mentioned previously with Earthbound, though. Is, was that the first game that you streamed? Yes, Earthbound was the first game I streamed. It was the inspiration to start streaming. Um, I played Earthbound, ironically, when Earthbound Beginnings was first announced for the Wii U. Because my introduction to Earthbound was Super Smash Brothers for the N64. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, who is Ness? Yeah. Okay, it's this weird <laughs> RPG that I've never heard of. And for years of my life, I just classified it that way. And then when finally Nintendo's like, oh, here's Earthbound Beginnings, I said, oh, okay, you know what? I think I got to give it a try. And it changed my life. It changed the way that I saw things, how I felt, something in its story, design. I mean, we're not talking about that game today, but in terms of me even talking about the game we're talking about today, I feel like it started from Earthbound where I wanted to retinker how I evaluate things. What and with started with Earthbound. So you played Earthbound Beginnings before you played Earthbound? Is that correct? No, no, no. I I, I okay. played Earthbound first because I okay, didn't want to make that mistake because I knew oh, I was I like no, no, play Earthbound first. <laughs> I mean chronologically, I guess, you know, I mean, you know, it's the second game in its series, but everybody on this side of the planet has definitely played Earthbound first and Oh yeah. Uh, I I've not even played Earthbound Beginnings like longer than an hour. Did you play the whole Earthbound Beginnings? Yep, I I wow. did it, and I have a lot of thoughts on that. Okay, it's another game I feel like most people I don't want to say don't understand, but it's there's a thing you gotta kind of break through, which is the re repetition, especially in its battle battle system. But it's another game that I do love. We're gonna have to talk about Earthbound Beginnings at some point. I think. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Name it or date, seems, I'll be there. Oh, awesome. <laughs> it seems like a game that's difficult to appreciate, I think, now. Uh, and that's totally speaking from my perspective. I 
I've tried to get into it because I love Earthbound so much, but trying to play Mother One is is a toughie for sure. Oh, absolutely. I never fault anyone who's not into it because all the criticism I've seen of it, I think is incredibly valid. Mm-hmm. And as my, not my responsibility, but the way I even want to do my streams, my goal is to take a game like that, which I know is working against itself in a lot of ways and trying to break it into micro points that I think people could connect with. Wow. And that's, I mean, I want to say that's providing value too, because there are so many people that just can't experience that game by themselves. Um, And I don't even know if I can. I (laughs) I mean, I don't, it's a hard game. It takes time and investment, but how I see it, I'm, I'm, I remember I see YouTube videos of like people making Nintendo games, Famicom, Super Famicom, and just them sitting at their desk with like the CRT at their table, program testing it and seeing the effort that goes into making these games, even if they can be frustrating for us to play them. And I always think to myself, there's so much labor and emotions that's involved to make these games that when I got older, I'm like, I feel like it's part of my job to try and make those people feel like what they worked on is worth checking out. Hmm. Interesting. Finding the human behind it. Yeah, because there is a human element to these games. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, so shoot, we're going to have to have that discussion down the road for sure. Uh, For today, this is MageCast episode 71. Cry me to the moon. I read the title and I knew it was perfect. <laughs> Be a huge shout out to to Nate, uh, Terrence Harkin, for coming up with that title. As soon as he said it, I was like, that's it. That's the title. That's Cry a 10 out of 10 moon. title. When I saw yeah. it, I was so happy. Yeah. I And I, I love throwing it out to the community. Do you have any title suggestions for each episode? Sometimes they come up with amazing stuff like this. I mean, this is, yeah, it is a 10 out of 10. Fantastic. And you think about that Raven fight, you know, it's just great. But we're talking about Super Mario World 2, Yoshi's Island, which was developed and published by Nintendo in 1995 for Super Nintendo. Now, light spoilers ahead if you care about spoilers for (laughs) Yoshi's Island. (laughs) Uh, the other baby is Luigi and having played it recently, uh, Friday, I, uh, I realized that, um, it calls them twins in this game. So it is definitely Canon. There's been some people who are like, is it Canon that they're twins? And like, yeah, it, I always assumed sure they were is. twins, but it's good. Right, to have a confirmation. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So it's in there. It says that they're twins. There you go. Uh, mage facts. Let's, let's jump into a few mage facts here to open us out. Uh, Yoshi's full name, or I guess his scientific designation, is T. Yoshisor Munchakupas. Uh, obviously, they did not keep that full name. <laughs> no, they did not. And for good reason. For good reason. And it makes me wonder, how much time did even went into this? Was it one person that came up with that name? Was it multiple people? It's like a board meeting. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, that's a uh, that sounds like a like a Chuck E. Cheese knockoff name right there. Munchakupas. Anyway, concepts for Yoshi go back as far as Super Mario Brothers three on the NES, where they had an idea to make Mario ride on a horse. 
although the horse concept eventually turned into a kind of lizard crocodile before becoming Yoshi in Super Mario World. Now, Crit, have you seen uh, prototype Yoshi? Have you seen those pictures? I have seen those pictures, but it was a long time ago. Okay. And I got to take a look at it again at some point. It's always interesting seeing early concept design. Uh, it's interesting seeing sprites that were designed for a prototypical Yoshi. Uh, he is a little, a little terrifying. He's got like a very small head, um, very slender neck as opposed to the more rounded kind of cuddly, uh, friendly looking Yoshi. This one definitely looks more like a velociraptor, a velociraptor. Yeah. I'm saying I'm looking at pictures of him now. You're not joking. No. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> that's one of those great instances of where they took the time to figure out the character before just dropping it in there. Cause could you imagine playing the entirety of Yoshi's Island like this with this? Thing? Oh, absolutely not. But I will yeah. say there are some enemy sprites that can be borderline terrifying, but also kind of cute, which is kind of the magic of the game. Cause it feels like it goes through so many different sequences yeah okay do you have a specific example because we'll talk about characters in a bit but right here at the beginning think, do you have it yeah yeah i think I, I think it was in the boss fight in world four where like you go where yoshi's going in and it's like just full fog and you're like going 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 and you see this and i think the boss is the koopa it's like a giant like kind of terrifying koopa in particular and just the way that its movement is and the way when you throw a shell at it, it kind of just slightly bends. It's always just weird because I feel like <laughs> the game can be so cute and kind of terrifying, but also really just bring out this weird intellectual side of my brain that this entire game just has been messing with me for five years. <laughs> so that's that red shelled uh, Koopa that you knock. Yes, I think that's right? what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's called, I had to look it up. It's called Hookbill the Koopa. Um, yeah, that, that, that is a, is a mysteriously uncomfortable scene that you just have to knock him on the back. And there's definitely some interesting bosses in here that we'll get to. Oh, for uh, sure. But one of the characters, a uh, major character and ended up in fact being introduced here. This is the first appearance of the Magic Koopa antagonist comic. Now, Magic Koopas, of course, were in uh, Super Mario World. I don't think they were in Super Mario Brothers 3. I don't believe so. I think the introduction okay. was World. Okay. I could be I'm gonna mistaken. Say that. Well, I'm going to say that's right. I'm going to say you're right. And somebody can correct <laughs> this later. <laughs> we'll wait for the comments later. Right. Uh, but comic, this this idea of like a kind of baby Bowser's like babysitter is just a funny Caregiver idea. almost? Yeah, kind of thing. Maybe like the midwife. I don't know. And the first introduction of getting comic when I first played this game, I really think that like the strongest scenes in the game is when you just see him just show up and the music starts playing and you just know that dialogue. It just has that nice sound effect that da 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 da. And then yeah, yes. sprinkle and then it's such a, it just aged so well to me. Yeah. I love, yeah. Well, you said a musical cue. I love that. Dun 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 dun. Dun 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 dun. Definitely. And, it, and we'll get to the audio out. because there's a lot to say there. Oh, definitely. For sure. Uh, next major fact here. There's a potentially apocryphal story about Shigeru Miyamoto, Super Mario's dad, being a rebel during the development of Yoshi's Island. After the success of Donkey Kong Country, 
He was told by Nintendo to adapt Yoshi's Island's visuals to resemble Rare's game, but instead fought back against the demand by creating hand, a hand-drawn cartoonish art style instead. Uh, Julian Titus on Twitter said, one of my favorite things about Super Mario World 2, besides the amazing gameplay, is that it exists in large part out of Miyamoto's spite towards CGI graphics found in Donkey Kong Country, possibly the most successful middle finger ever given. And then discussing That's that a a, example. Yeah, discussing it a bit further, though, with, with Julian, uh, he arrived that this is potentially a legend. So I tried to look further into it and a lot of uh sources linked to uh i think it was just the gamer website um where it just stated it as fact but then i couldn't find a source so digging a little further i found an interview with some of the developers uh that say shigeru miyamoto fought back or he he, he i think they said it in the present tense fight fight back um against that but they, it's not super clear so i don't know how real of a story that is but it's novel at least to imagine that you know they told miyamoto hey you, you need to make this look like donkey kong donkey kong country because that game was so successful and he was just like no nah, i'm gonna do what i want and he like just yeah dives head first into the cartoonish hand-drawn crayon backgrounds i think what i find so interesting is that there's always a level of mystery between the relationship of Shigeru Miyamoto and Nintendo specifically. That sort of Kyoto-inspired artists and game developers versus the corporate Tokyo Nintendo headquarters. And you don't really find out how that relationship always goes. But it was always under my assumption that Yoshi's Island was Shigeru Miyamoto's way of making specifically a 2D Mario game that doesn't have Mario, but pushes it to its absolute limits where you you always wonder, was Nintendo happy with it? Mm. But you just feel the effort and passion and imagination that you know Miyamoto always puts into his work, at least in the early 90s. And just seeing it from Super Mario Brothers 1, I mean, I guess we can say two, but we know it's obviously just Doki Doki Panic, but Super Mario 3, Super Mario World, to this, when you take that chronology, you just see so much evolution and imagination. And it just makes you realize, wow, Shigeru Miyamoto was a genius. And <laughs> yeah. I know that doesn't really need to be said. It's not groundbreaking. But for me right. personally, who didn't get into Yoshi's Island before playing the other Mario games, it felt like things came full circle. Yeah, and it's it's shocking to me they, that I read the developers expressed that they felt they had already done everything that they could in a 2D platformer sphere and focus was beginning to shift towards the N64 and they were already beginning to work on Mario 64. Uh, and so from their perspective, they probably thought, okay, this is the swan song. Uh it Absolutely. sounded like they were saying with Super Mario World, we've done everything we could. What else is there? And so they come up with the the gimmick of, oh, you play as Yoshi. But even in that, I feel like they really created. I mean, this is like a borderline like run and gun because you have a, you have straight up like a projectile at any time 
that you can just convert enemies into. Uh, yeah. There's so many unique elements of Yoshi's Island. And I feel like that's something I really appreciate about it. It's not at all just like an expansion of Super Mario Brothers 3 like Super Mario World was. And not in a bad way, but that's it just that's what it is. But Yoshi's Island is so different from both Mario 3 and Mario World. Yeah, and Yoshi's Island feels like this weird cross-genre of being a platformer, being kind of a shooter, because you're using those projectile eggs all the time. And it makes you have to interact in a platform environment different than I've ever seen before. And a lot of the difficulty that I had first playing this game was the amount of attention is acquired because there's so many things that are happening in each level at each moment that in comparison to playing like Super Mario World or Super Mario 3 even, I found that even with those other games, I could kind of take a step back sometimes and just kind of enjoy, enjoy it more casually. But Yoshi's mm -hmm. Island it took me for a loop because you have this cute, beautiful art style. And obviously we'll talk about the other Yoshi games, but I found myself completely invested and in having to use every skill as a gamer to get through many of the parts of the levels, the bosses, everything. I, that's very well said, I think. Another thing that sets this apart as well is this was only one of three Super Nintendo games, evidently, to use the Super FX2 chip. Now, there's a variety of chips that are not just two, uh, apparently. I don't know. I'm not a hardware guy. I'll be honest with you, Crit. I, you know, <laughs> Neither am be, I. So I was hoping yeah, you would explain okay. it more than me. Yeah. I uh, I talked to there. You know, you meet some some retro gamers and like, oh yeah, I soldered. You know, my uh, my Sega Genesis to my Super Nintendo and created like a super hybrid. And I was like, I I don't even know what that means, honestly. But my perspective, it sounds like yours as well, is always the criticism of the art aspect of it. Um, the the architecture, the design uh, is probably a broader word to use there. So we start getting into things like chips. That's that's a little like borderline territory for me. Um, I know that there's just multiple chips. I don't know what they and all they do. Multiple things. Right. Yeah. Depending on who you ask. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what they all. But... Yeah. Um, but. Uh, you know, we know the Super FX chip from Star Fox. Um, the fact that the Super Nintendo could run, you know, this game that had all those polygons simultaneously in a 3D environment uh, with Yoshi's Island. Here's an interesting comparison with Star Fox. Like Star Fox, when we had our, our podcast episode uh, with Dan from Retro Logic, we talked about Star Fox being essentially a tech demo. Uh, for the capabilities yes. of the Super Nintendo to do a 3D thing. And that's not a knock against Star Fox. I mean, it is, but that's definitely the purpose of Star Fox. Tired of the endless crusade of shifting through all the marked up, insincere, bloviated, fake listings dominating the gaming aftermarket? Have you visited joypadlad.com yet? The good guy of retro gaming isn't a moniker you pick up by mistake. Besides for an ever-shifting selection of video games, Joypad Lad boasts a collection of other items and categories ready for your perusal right now.
There is gaming-related merch galore, licensed products, comic books, figures, mystery boxes, stickers, magnets, baubles, and trinkets to suit any fancy, new and old, plus new projects coming this year. Check out joypadlad.com and tell them I sent you by accepting this coupon code for 10% off your purchase, RED10. That's RED10, R-E-D-1-0, for 10% off your order. Don't miss out. You never know when you'll find your next grail. That chip showed me that that console, the Super Nintendo, it had more years left. In uh, it. 1995 was showing a level of sophistication in its software and its design for a multitude of games in that series. I guess I would even extend it to like 1994, 1995, that I always had this kind of belief, and I don't know if I should say publicly, that I think the Nintendo 64 came out too early sometimes. Because yeah. it didn't allow these games. I, I just felt like the Super Nintendo, it had one one year left to really ha have these developers who might have had, who I wish had more access to that chip specifically and to see how they could have transformed the video game space in almost like a 2.5 way. And yes. I also find it, the fact that we're even talking about this right now with obviously with the Nintendo Direct that just came out with, you know, the push for 2.5 remakes for older SNES titles that haven't even been released in America to talk about Yoshi's Island just feels incredibly fitting. Because it as does. you said, I I count Yoshi's Island as the swan song for mm. the console of Super Nintendo. That is, to me, it starts with Super Mario World and it ends, ironically enough, whether it's titled properly or not, with Super Mario World 2, Yoshi's Island. Mm. And, you know, it's sad because like I missed it just by a few years. And I do feel grateful that, you know, I'm now taking the time to try and appreciate these titles more. But, you know... I agree that Star Fox was a tech demo and not just a tech demo, but a, a vital sign to specifically Miyamoto of how far he can push his own imagination with this hardware, which, you know, especially now with the way consoles are going, like I can't take that for granted. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. I mean, it's surprising then to think that Star Fox being a tech demo uh, really featuring kind of that that uh, that whole aspect of 3D. The the comparison that I want to make is Yoshi's Island is not all about just the Super FX2 chip, but it uses it sparingly to create really impressive effects. Really impressive effects. Absolutely. Like the, the sprite twisting and scaling um, that is definitely present on bosses. Whenever you see those 3D effects of like the uh the platforms that spin towards the screen or the walls that fall into the foreground yeah. such an astonishing astonishing effect and i really want to echo what you said so like the only three games using the super fx2 doom winter gold which nobody's played i've not played I that say, i barely know anything about it yeah like i've seen pictures and then yoshi's island i mean totally they could have got more years out of the Super Nintendo. My friends, if you're listening and you think they could have got more years out of the Super Nintendo, leave a five-star review for MageCast, please. Please uh, do. <laughs> please, but, we deserve it. <laughs> we do. Come on. Uh, but reading about uh, gaming history recently with a couple of books, uh, one that I picked up, I know that that was gifted to me. Uh, it's interesting to note that Nintendo seemed very reluctant 
to release the Super Nintendo at all because the NES, the Famicom, so successful. It seems like they thought they could just camp on that system, but then they started getting competition, right? You know, yeah, absolutely. They they started getting Sega encroaching, uh, and and other folks coming on in, and it's like okay, now that you know the Mega Drive Genesis is out, it makes the NES look like an ancient. It makes the NES look like comic, ancient turtle. And what I always find interesting is the way that Nintendo, the competitors for Nintendo, have always put themselves in a position where they have to advertise themselves as looking better. We look better than a Nintendo game because we have all this processing power and we can do all these things with these games that Nintendo can't do. And I really do believe that that pushed the Super Nintendo and its developers, like including Rare even at the time, to have to make titles that matched what was coming out at the time. And ironically enough to me, have aged better than their competitors. I don't know many games that have aged as well as Yoshi's Island. Yeah, I mean, with its dedicated visuals, for sure. I mean, that that element of competition was so special in that era, and that was open, you know, and it was vicious sometimes as well. But if that pushed developers to be more creative, to be more innovative, to think harder, to not... I mean, we all don't want a monopoly in video games. That would be terrible. It'd be somebody could just, eh, I'll just put stuff out because they're going to buy it anyway. But... When there's competition in this market, then you really see a lot of amazing things happen. And I feel like that just dominated the 90s and a huge reason why the 90s was fantastic. And like you said, a huge reason why the Super Nintendo did so well as well. Yeah, And I think it's kind of sad because at the end of the day, when you look at this in a modern context, Sony and Nintendo are so separate now between their Mm. software capabilities, which... There's such a different expectation that is now placed on both of the titles that they release that it doesn't feel like one is really pushing the other anymore. And it's creating, I think, a division in video game culture where they have to embrace a certain brand that is so separate from each other that it promotes these different circles that have to present themselves differently. Like if you are someone who embraces the Switch and Nintendo, then you tend to care about games that are classified as quote unquote, I'm putting all this in quotations, but of course, more simple in design, graphics, gameplay. And if you're someone that's into Sony, you care more about a more, you know, almost cinematic experience because of obviously mm-hmm. the PlayStation 5 capabilities. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that benefits either party. Because yes. It's promoting a sense of division where I feel like in the 90s with Sega and Nintendo, they really pushed each other. And even though obviously Mario and Sonic were just completely different titles, there was almost something similar in the sense that, you know, they were both obviously platformers and you wanted to see which which one the other could do more. And I wish that sort of sense of competition and imagination was still here because I felt like it just brought out a better conversation. I mean, and that's that's a really worthy observation to make that I think that there's a huge difference between two companies uh, that are the ones making these products uh, having competition and the fandoms having competition. Fandoms having competition is like you're just fans. You're not really producing the games themselves. You don't have ownership over the games themselves. That's where it gets ugly. I mean, obviously, there was some mudslinging in the 90s as well from the business perspective but 
again, it pushed them to create the art uh, that we still enjoy to this day. And so there's definitely a distinction there. I think that you can appreciate the 90s console wars from a business perspective without necessarily having to buy into the modern, uh, let's let's just call it the modern fanboy console wars. Oh, of course. But on top of that, though, you also made this interesting observation about the sheer chasm that exists between what is essentially a tablet, the switch, and then what is essentially a gaming PC, the PS five, they could yeah. not be more different. And so, you know, some, so like Pokemon legends, Arceus came out recently, right? I've been playing it totally a Nintendo game, right? Uh, it has the gameplay there that you love, that you get addicted to. That's fine. That's all there from a visual perspective. There's, I mean, comparing it to like almost any PS5 game is a fool's errand. It couldn't possibly. You can't do it. No, you can't. It's built in its design where you cannot have that conversation. And that's incredibly unfortunate because it means that the people who embrace a certain style of gaming chooses to omit that sort of section of a game where it's like, you know what? I know that Pokemon's not going to look as good as a PlayStation 5 game. So I'm not going to talk about the visuals as much with Pokemon, even though, in my opinion, there are a lot of things that you can talk about in Pokemon's visual design, even on the Switch. If you if you think it's good or bad, it's a conversation to me that is still worth having. But when right. you just have this complete polar opposite experience on the other side of the woods, there just creates a sense of separation where you're right. It turns into mudslinging. It turns into you are this kind of person because of you like this and you are this. And I know, and I want to be clear, like that was also present in the nineties. But when I look at like even Twitter now, it's just so impersonal. And right. it's just like, do we even like games? Like yeah. I, it's just when you see the level, <laughs> and that's again, why I'll be honest. I don't want to, you know, I know I keep saying this all the time, but that's why I got into your journalism so much because it was able to take a step back and actually focus on these games from an angle that I think is, I don't want to say more human, but actually involves part of the thinking process of what these developers go through. Because a lot of us, I feel like we take it for granted, but to program something to look a certain way, even if it doesn't look good, still requires a sense of labor and effort. And to me, that makes it worth observing at that point, because there's a human connection to it. Which is why for Yoshi's Island, like, oh my god, like I could talk about everything about this game for hours. And it's it's just hard to even know where to begin. Yeah. I mean, well, maybe the worst thing anybody could say is the devs are just being lazy. How often do you hear that? Well, it's like, were you, All are the you time. there like observing people putting their legs up on the desk and eating potato chips when they should be working? You know, yeah. it, there's there's so many potential elements that could go wrong factors that could go wrong in game development could be mismanagement could be you know misproduction from the as far as in terms of like the upper level uh producers it could be just sheer ineptitude be beyond just laziness who knows i mean there could just be all all sorts of reasons another thing i want to mention that you mentioned is i don't, I don't want to oversell anything here uh and i you you are extremely kind with your verbiage about the work that I've done, uh, but completely being honest, uh, it is. So you mentioned sort of the, like the faceless, the anonymity that makes discussion about video games difficult on Twitter. 
Um, unfortunately, I spent a year and a half, two years, um, really just buying into that, spending way too much time on social media, um, having binary arguments with people that are essentially meaningless that would not have been had with a person face to face, just would not have I, been had. I truly think that the way the entire visual interface is set up with social media and its connection to talking about video game culture, it takes a lot of removing yourself to be able to not engage with it, which I think creates its own danger because as someone who like in my Twitter, like how I use social media, I don't put my opinions on video games out there almost ever. And it's not because I have a fear of what other people say or a fear of what people would think, but the way that we talk about games on certain social media, like on social media, I just don't even know how to phrase it. Like, I feel like mm -hmm. for me, it takes me like an hour of just talking myself through my own emotions and feelings in terms of my experiences before I can even write it down, which, mm -hmm. you know, I'm so jealous of people that are able to do it much more quickly. And I see, you know, and I want to be clear, a lot of what I've seen, like there are things on Twitter that people have posted about video game, especially with criticism and that, that have completely influenced me, you included in that. So I just, but the thing is like, I don't try to fault people sometimes if they do engage in this, like, oh my God, this person is just saying something that is so problematic and incorrect about this that I, I just got to say something back because, you know, you're human. That's part of like having a human voice is that you want to be able to have that dialogue. And it's unfortunate that the way that social media is structured, that it gives you the platform to have that conversation. But then you come to the realization, you know, 20, 30 minutes later, it's like, did I even say anything at all? Mm -hmm. And what I love, especially what we're doing right now and having my first podcast with you is that we can have this discussion where I've had these thoughts and feelings that I probably should have put down on pen and paper for so many years, but now it's like, it's finally here. And I think that's the thing. Like people have to embrace having a conversation and it's, I feel like in a modern context, it's harder and harder to do. So I just, you know, yeah. I think you should definitely give yourself more credit there. <laughs> well, I, I guess I know, uh, and I don't want to spend too much time on this point, obviously. I guess I know myself where I was getting a kind of satisfa satisfaction off of it as well. Um, but I do agree. I think that social media is designed towards eliciting those responses from people. Because um, again, you're the product on social media. You are the you are the social aspect of it. Otherwise, it's just media. So, <laughs> when it comes to discussing these things, I think absolutely you need the longer form. Uh, you need the longer formats. You need podcasts. You need video. You need streaming. You need writing, in order to discuss these things. Because like Twitter, Instagram is not designed for discussion at all. It's yeah. just not. Yeah, it's it's deeply disturbing. It's a product that's made that's free because you're the product. And right, sometimes you have to it, have right. that conversation of why that is and how do I make sure that I'm still myself through that. Right. And not lose yourself. Oh, there's a whole discussion there. 
talking here about the art style, though, returning to that, uh, Le Merloc said, can you believe Game Pro Magazine? I think that's what it was. I recently lost my copy. Gave this game like a 6 out of 10 for its graphics. And look how well they've held up the Wind Waker of its time. So I <laughs> I don't know anything about Game Pro Magazine ratings and what their scale is. Maybe it's you know skewed in one way or another. But the fundamental point of the graphics aging well, definitely... Uh, you know, an observation, a series of observations been making recently and asking people about various consoles and whether they believed they aged well or not. And just kind of hearing people's opinions on it, not trying to make a point. I feel like there are some people who argued with those threads uh, from such a perspective that they thought I was trying to make a point by asking the question, but I'm, I'm not, I'm genuinely curious sometimes. And so I asked these, these very general questions, uh, sometimes potentially loaded questions. But I think when you're talking about something like Yoshi's Island, that's 2D, that evidently they drew by hand and then scanned and and, and painted over with the pixels in a, on a computer, that really, that really lasts. I mean, you're looking yeah. at very real human illustrations. I 100% agree. It's human illustrations. And I think I'm thinking about it when replaying this. There's one thing that Yoshi's Island to me, I think, perfected in an art style. And that is the utilization of the foreground and the background. It's creating an environment in which you have things happening. Like even like just thinking about, you know, the the butterfly that happens like in the foreground in conjunction to the enemies in the environment and just just this very, very beautifully scenic like waterfall, which I want to talk about that. The water effects in Yoshi's Island, I think are some of the best water effects I have seen ever. There is just something, because you're right, there is that sort of human hand-drawn aspect to it that almost has this like Miyazaki look to it in terms of its effort. And it took many years for them to do it. And I saw that someone said that GamePro Magazine gave it a 6 out of 10. I'm so happy that that happened. Because to me, for something to age as well as it does in here, it has to do something groundbreaking that is going to ruffle a few feathers, that is going to change the status quo. And I think the fact that this game delivered an art style that even now, to me, is incredibly mysterious on how they do it. And that's the big thing about Nintendo video game history. They don't always open up about their entire process of how they make the they make these games. And that, well, that, you know, is unfortunate for people who are have a more historian-type brain to try and want to discern that. It does leave this level of imagination where the world of Super Mario World... I gotta stop calling Super Mario World. Just Yoshi's Island... I've never seen a world like that. It's mm-hmm. so unique. And I'm just very curious what you have, you know, feeling about it when just playing these levels. Yeah. I mean, to me, and we'll get here. I think this will lead us into our first impressions. The first time that we've played it. I think you've hinted at it a couple of times and I really want to uh, just hear your thoughts on that. Having played it recently. Um, but for me, it is, it, it's astounding. It was astounding. The very first time I saw it, in a Toys R Us at, on a demo kiosk, uh, having played Super Mario World first, not knowing this was coming because, I'm, you know, 
I didn't follow video game news or anything like that, like eight years <laughs> old or however old I was. Uh, and so just bumping into this game. Oh my gosh, they made a new Mario game, dad. And look, and it just looks like a living color book, coloring book. Uh, that very first stage that I played, I think was the flower fields, um, where, like you said, there's, there's very dynamic foreground and background, extreme foreground and background where you have the scrolling, the parallax scrolling on the flowers in the foreground, You've got the the platforming segment that Yoshi runs along, and it's not flat. It's not yeah. just like a, a a a bridge that you're running across of bricks or anything. It's these rolling hills with stones jutting out of them, with with all kinds of dynamic features. I mean, you're moving mm-hmm. vertically, you're moving horizontally, and then in the extreme background, you have these pastel mountains that just look as if they've been painted by hand, and I thought that was just stunning when I first saw it. And still to this day, I mean, having just played it recently on a CRT, doing CRT streams now and trying to get the technical aspect down for that. It just looks amazing to me. It is really just a, a, a beautiful uh, design philosophy. Absolutely. And as someone who didn't get into it until college, what is so ironic about everything that you just said is that that somehow is my first impression when looking at this game is the fact that even just on the on a geometrical level how the introduction levels are introduced it's not just a linear pathway as you get from obviously the original mario brothers there are so many twists and curves and things that intersect and interact within the environment and things happening in the background, things that are moving around in the foreground, that what I find the most jealous of, what I'm so jealous of, is that particularly why it makes it unique as a Nintendo property is that it's not pretentious. It's not. It's inviting. It's these warm, like colorful, almost childlike imagination colors that makes it inviting and accessible for people to join in on it, where I feel like, and I don't, I don't think this is a knock, but let's take a game like Octopath Traveler, or let's take mm-hmm. the, what, the new Live A Live? I forget the title, but the new 2.5 remake that's coming up. Mm-hmm. And it its entire philosophy is built on showing off how beautiful the environment looks, how gorgeous like the background is in the foreground with its lighting engine. That's the selling point of a 2.5 game. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that it wants to have the player f- feel that sense of maturity in its visual design. But Yoshi's Island isn't like that. It wants to have you connect with it and see it as this memorable experience that isn't super sophisticated. Because at the end of the day, mm-hmm. it isn't super sophisticated. You know, the enemies are kind of like silly at times. You know, you've got a crying baby on your back when you get it. <laughs> and that's... Yeah. But the fact that there's so much happening at the same time, it's just like, man, what I would have given to be just a part of this project to spend my working days working on something that just clearly had imagination and talent behind it. Yeah, I it's interesting to say, I mean, you're absolutely right that that it's not a sophisticated game and that it's not a mature game. The word mature in gaming doesn't necessarily mean like like having grown up or having developed, you know, one's senses. 
uh, one's abilities. Word mature in gaming typically means like, you know, body horror, gore, nudity, cringy sex scenes that happen in games. <laughs> but looking at Yoshi's Island, it's kind of the complete opposite. The point that I want to draw out, though, is that I think from a design perspective, there's so much complexity. There's so much yes. that had to go on in order to create what is disarmingly simple, like the illusion of simplicity, right? Absolutely. And that, that is the best word you just used, the illusion of simplicity. It is an art form that I think you can't be taught. It just takes years and years of dedication to get to that level in your craft. That's the craft. Yeah, exactly. To make it look effortless. I mean, so like... For sure, people looked at Yoshi's Island and were like, well, look at this like baby game. It looks like they drew it with crayons. But like, do you know like how much effort it must have taken to make it look like it was drawn with crayons? Yeah. It and must also, have... <laughs> I wanna, and I want to bring this up with you specifically. I didn't sure. think about this until I played it recently. And I saw a little bit of your own VOD of when you were playing it this week. I want to talk about the animation of Yoshi himself. And the fact that Yoshi's entire movement and sprite animation when interacting with his environment, like the throwing animation, the way his eyes blink when you have to do a sudden move, it looks effortless. But I'm sure that you can also attest to this, that when you look at like a really bad Super Nintendo game, it can look so choppy in movement. That is mm, one of the hardest yeah. things to program is natural movement in an environment. And the fact that, you know, you had Yoshi from, you know, Super Mario World, which was, I think, was a very simple design going from left to right. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they really perfected his design. And again, it isn't just one green Yoshi. I think it's crazy they included all the colors, too. Yeah. <laughs> it just, it makes it so, I'm not even thinking about the fact that Yoshi's movement works so well from a visual and gameplay standpoint. And that's the point, is that, that's where my jealousy comes in because now you look at Nintendo proper, what the Nintendo brand is about, and it doesn't focus on things like that. Because again, mm. people always are like, oh, well, the Nintendo game never looks as good. And then here you have a Nintendo game that it looks in a way that I think not only is just aged like wine, aged perfectly, but I still can't figure out how they do it. It's like a magician. It's like a magic trick. Yeah. And that's interesting because I was actually thinking about this today playing Arceus. Uh, just how flat some of the NPCs are and the animations of the characters. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like, you know, you've heard this refrain, obviously. Uh, well, it's like you just play it for the gameplay. Uh, but there was a time when it's like you played it for the gameplay and everything else, too. Uh, Yoshi's yeah. Island, for some reason, has that that beautiful collision of, of, of multiple masterful uh, skills and, 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 and traits coming together. Uh, like with Yoshi's yeah. Sprite, it is astonishing. I mean, he breaks into a run, but it's not just like he breaks into a run. He, he begins walking and then leans forward and then leans into the run and is eventually running low against the ground. Uh, and when he's standing still, he's got his idle animation where he's got his, his finger on his chin, uh, where he's kind of marching in place. All of those little things give a non-speaking character so much personality. Yeah. And that's a highlight non-speaking 
that's groundbreaking for especially at a time in 1995 when you had games like Chrono Trigger, you had Earthbound, you had a lot of titles that were trying to really push dialogue as a means of sophistication. And here you have just clearly, obviously, a silent protagonist. It's a Mario game that is able to really show, I think, complexity through just movement. It's almost like, again, like a silent film like that. And yeah. as someone who, I mean, obviously with my background is like, I try to really get into film through composition, through directing, through acting. I find that Yoshi's Island's composition from a, like a director standpoint, where for a director, you're just trying to take all of the tools and labors that everyone has involved in the lighting department, acting, you know, music, you got you to be the conductor of all of this, that Yoshi's Island is a perfectly directed game because every single aspect of it is layered on top of each other where it almost feels like you can't separate it. And you're right. Like what you just said is that, you know, Pokemon, the new Pokemon game can look flat in certain instances, but you know, that's okay. You could just separate from that and focus on the gameplay. The real magic of any art, whether it's a game or film or anything, is the fact that things are so seamlessly tied together that you can't take one aspect of it away because it's Mm. tied in with everything else. Yeah, it seems like there has to be a kind of willful. I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to say it too harshly. Not willful ignorance, but a willful ignoring. That's not quite the same thing. I don't know what the right word is there, but it takes something extra from the player uh to be able yeah. to make the that distinction whatever that is, whatever we want to call it. Not sure right now. Whereas when you play some games like Yoshi's Island, it just everything works together. Another thing you mentioned um, way back there somewhere. I can't remember verbatim what was said, but (laughs) historical (laughs) context for Yoshi's Island is also phenomenal. So, uh, you know, I know you mentioned you just played this game like only five years ago. And that's astounding that we had essentially the same reaction to it. But historically... Uh, there's a couple of of layers here of context that uh, that a few commenters pulled out. First from Info Sprinkles, who said Yoshi's Island made cute dinosaurs cool again after Jurassic Park ate Land Before Time. <laughs> oh my god, I love that comment. <laughs> that is a great comment. Uh, a gamer looks at forty said, at least in my circle, Yoshi's Island was largely panned upon release. Did you experience the same? And if so, do you think the art design, the Yoshi focus or other caused the backlash? It always felt like Super Mario Brothers 2 of the Super Nintendo, an awesome game underappreciated during its time. And then I PSN- love the comparison. Sorry. I oh, love yeah. That comparison no, to Super Mario Brothers 2. It totally makes sense, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, people might say, well, it's just a reskin. But the idea of the second game being so different from the first yes. Is, yes. is a great observation. And then PSN Electric DC said, uh, great topic here. I remember memes about crying Mario before we even called them memes. For the older of us Super NES players, I think this was looked at as a kiddie game at the time and left us ripe to be swept away by Crash Bandicoot the next year. So we know that by the time this game was out, Sega was in full swing doing their, you know, we do the the more mature gaming thing. Uh, we've got an edgier mascot. Um, we've got the edgier games. This is, you know, you grew up playing these 
these younger games. But now you're getting older. You want to transition to Sega. And then Sony comes along and Sony's like, hey, check it out. You're not playing those rated E for everyone games anymore. Now you're playing these very mature games rated T or even rated M. Right. And then in the midst of that drops again, a literal baby game that looks like (laughs) a little kid's coloring book that literally has baby Mario being carried on the back of candy colored Yoshi's through this, this infantile nursery rhyme wonderland. And I can absolutely understand why and how that would have turned off some players who were like, I'm over here playing metal gear solid final fantasy seven. I mean, not exactly in 95, but I'm playing, you know, these more advanced, uh, shooters and mature games. And now Nintendo wants us to play this baby game, get yeah. out of town. So I can Absolutely. see that total rejection, I guess to answer a gamer looks at 40, I guess that Yoshi's Island has enjoyed a pretty consistent critical reception, but as far as consumer reception, uh, it's not hard to believe that, that it, it, it must've had a hard time. Yeah, for sure. And again, I feel like the price point we got to talk about just with that chip, it made the games yes. more expensive to invest in. And if you are in the position where you have this game that involves literally Mario as a baby with a green dinosaur, why am I paying an extra $15 to play it? When I could, you know, have this game by Konami or from another another console where I can pay less money and have, I guess, be brought out like, okay, I'm I'm playing something more sophisticated because, you know, of this way that I view it. So again, it's just a lot of interesting things that are intersecting with each other at the time of its release, which to me reflects 1995 as being one of the most groundbreaking years in the history of video games in which multiple companies, multiple platforms we're starting to go in these different, not just different directions, but bringing out different conversations that made players have to ask themselves what they look for in a video game because now there were options available. Absolutely. And I feel like if I had been a little bit older at the time, I probably would have skipped over it as well. Um, so I'm glad I was at the right age or maybe I just didn't care enough. Because <laughs> um, eventually I did. I mean, I transitioned to PlayStation 1. And got an N64 later, but um, I totally jumped ship from Nintendo to Sony uh, and got invested in, like you said, invested in those story-heavy games and in what I thought at the time was mature gaming, mature narratives, um, certainly mature in regards to Yoshi's Island. But moving here along, uh, I put out a question to folks about... Uh, the Super Nintendo Mario games. Now, obviously, there's many. You know, there's the Time Machine, <laughs> there is Mario Paint. Uh, but I took four of like the core Mario games for Super Nintendo: Super Mario World, Yoshi's Island, Mario RPG, and Mario Kart. And I asked people to rank them. Uh, and I want to mm-hmm. ask you if you can rank them as well. Have you played I'll the four it. of those? Yes. And note, I didn't ask people how to rank them. That's up to you. Interesting. So I don't even know how I'm going to be ranking them because, again, what I find for me particular is that all the games that you just listed, I approach them at an older age, I feel, compared to most people when they first played them. And I think in terms of a design standpoint and just overall experience, I'll always put Yoshi's Island at the top 
because as I say, I think it's one of the, I think it is the swan song of just 2D consoles as a whole mm. because of what it was able to accomplish. And then I have to go with right under it, Super Mario RPG, because mm. I felt like it took a genre and pushed it in a direction and pushed Mario itself in a direction that wasn't supposed to be possible because it was so outside of the brand of not only what Nintendo was, but what Mario was at the time and made it a very accessible experience for me that just the, the amount of people I know personally on Twitch that still play Mario RPG and love every second of it. It's astounding. So <laughs> I, I feel like I have to put it almost right under because of that. And then for the other two, I'm going to be completely honest. Like when it comes to especially Mario Kart, I grew up with Super Mario Kart 64 as a kid growing up. I put in the most hours and also doing Double Dash that every single time that I try to get into Super Mario, like Mario Kart, the first one, the original one, I have a trouble. I have trouble doing it. And it's not because I don't appreciate it for what it is, but I don't, there's just something about it that I think my own bias of playing other Mario Kart titles first just makes me unfortunately not, not I don't want to say not appreciate it, but try to fully understand what the experience was like for players, especially at the time of its release. So that one's going to be last, probably. Okay. I mean, it's hard to argue with that lineup. And I got to say, this is what I hate the what I hate the most is that every time I do like rankings like this, I always feel like I'm stepping on someone's toes. And how I say <laughs> it, and I do this, I do this with my own stream and everything that I'm giving you a listing of things that I feel most of a connection with, but doesn't necessarily mean that it's better than the other. Mm -hmm. Because I just fundamentally don't, I don't want to say don't believe in it, but I, it's just hard for me to invalidate someone else's experience that they have with a title that they oh, might absolutely. think is a better. So, and that's the, that's the important distinction between the subjective and the objective. That's what prevents somebody from saying, you know, like saying Final Fantasy VI is the best Final Fantasy. Oh, God, somebody, yes, those are. <laughs> well, it's, but I mean, like somebody can say that and not mean that means your favorite Final Fantasy shouldn't be your favorite. Or that mm. means that you're wrong if you say, you know, XYZ is the best. Because like, what do, what do they mean by the best? Do they mean that they think it's the it's the best designed? If so, they better have some something to back that up. Uh, or do they mean it's the best to me as in AKA my favorite? Because if it just means my favorite is Final Fantasy VI. Nobody can argue with that. And that certainly doesn't invalidate somebody else liking something else more. So it's one of those weird things like just I don't know if this is an English problem. I wonder if it's a, a an issue in other languages. Um, but we use favorite and best interchangeably just naturally. Um, and it's something that Absolutely. I've tried to raise awareness about, but eh, it's not a huge issue. End of the day. I find there's a lot of limitations in terms of presenting something that you connect with. And this doesn't isn't just with video games. I think this is just any sort of artistic platform where unless you really have a stellar vocabulary, which I don't, I just, I truly don't. It's incredibly difficult to be able to express the things that you connect with most or you think is particularly a favorite without having to unfortunately go down that rabbit hole of using the 
sensationalist language of saying this is better or this mm. is best because mm. you know it's just going to grab the kind of attention that you know i think it's natural for people to look for that because it gives yourself an internal sense of validation and confidence and because you also want it i mean i'm sorry i think human beings human beings always challenge each other so they mm. want to put themselves in a position where it's like yeah i think six is better than seven and i'm not even going to argue that and <laughs> you know i do see like the satisfaction in that mm-hmm. but again and that was definitely me when i was in like high school oh my god that was definitely me in high school but <laughs> i think in high school a lot of us at the time were like seven is better than anything that'll ever oh, of be course made. absolutely yeah. but yeah. when i got older i just started to realize that every single game had something different that i was connecting with mm-hmm. and it made you have to have a love for the art of discussion to truly, I think, bring out the things, especially with a game like Super Mario World 2, Yoshi's Island. Again, I'll keep saying the full title for some reason. I have no idea why I'm doing that, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to have a long discussion to really bring out what is it that you're connecting with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I have to talk about Earthbound, oof, I had to start streaming. I had to start streaming just to be able to have any discussion with Earthbound because it's such a personal love and connection that I have with that series that the idea of having to be like, oh, I think it's the best RPG and that people don't appreciate it. I just feel like I'm never doing it justice. So when I see like a list went that includes Super Mario World, RPG, you know, Super Mario Kart, there's just that, that anxiety, that anxiety that's just like, <laughs> oh no, there's so many micro <laughs> things about all this stuff that I want to talk about, but how do I do it? So I'm just yeah. glad that I'm not going to be. Well, I guess I kind of did it, but I, I, I guess I'm presenting my argument more of <laughs> why I right. try to slow right, things right. down. I mean, and then again, that's why I didn't specify like which ones do you think are best or which ones are more your favorite. So people can bring that to the table if they want to. I feel like if you want to talk comparative craft, that's fine, but that's a different discussion from if you want to talk, uh, you know, these games are important to me for X, Y, Z. And both of those yeah. conversations can be had, but they're separate conversations. I think oh, that some sure. people don't realize that they're really talking to themselves when they have those conversations because the person they're talking to is thinking in the opposite terms than the person talking. Right. Though the person talking yes. may be thinking, oh, I'm thinking of best in terms of, say, like, you know, characters with better developed arcs or something. And then the other person's like, I'm just thinking about that summer in 97. Yeah. When exactly. I, you know, so you never know what the parameters are. Right. 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 And so people should be candid about that. But I, again, end of day. Where's the fun in that? Right, right, right. <laughs> End of day, uh, you know, we're not moderating forums here or anything like of course. that. Um, but if you want to have the conversation earnestly, specify which conversation it is, I think is important. Of course. Yeah. Ex- again, you uh, got to explain yourself. It's something right. that I feel like is a skill that you have to learn as you get older in life, no matter what profession you do. It's just yeah. very easy to get caught in your own head and be like, I know that I'm right. I know that people are... Mis- it's so easy to feel misunderstood but it's incredibly difficult to develop that skill where it's like, no, if I'm going to be understood, it's my responsibility to have to discipline myself to make myself be understood to others with different experiences. 
And it's a completely a lost art. And it's something that I've just been trying to work on even through my own stream. Because I'll think that I'm right about something, you know, nine, you know, just my entire life. And then when I actually have to be put in a position where I put myself out there and have to explain it, and you get sort of not just a counter argument, but that sort of alternate perspective, you have that realization like, wow, I actually now think kind of differently from that. And you evolve through that. But, you know, you just have to kind of embrace it. That idea of just putting your perspective out there. Yeah, never mind the Mandela effect. <laughs> I always oh, thought God, this yeah. was a thing. And then you find out it's like, no, that was never a thing. So, you, you know, you mentioned that you were calling it by its full title. Uh, there's a question here from Joypad Lad Shop. Was it a mistake, in your opinion? Was it a mistake calling it Super Mario World 2? Yes and no. And I have a very... Ooh. It's yes and no, and yes and no in both contexts of when it was released, and a yes and no of now a modern context of it. And I want to—I'm curious—I want to hear your thoughts first before I get into it. Uh so honestly, this is one I just don't know that I feel too strongly ab- about it. I think it is confusing from a, a perspective of like, you know, if you if you were at the time you've played Mario World. There is an expectation that's created by putting two in it, in the title. There's an expectation that you're trusting the consumer base with that they can handle that this will be different from Mario World because that probably creates the risk. And I'm sure that there were people who were disappointed playing Yoshi's Island and being like, this is not Mario World 2. Yeah, definitely. You know, so that's the that's. To me, that's the only aspect, but it's interesting to me that you're pointing out a historical and then a contemporary issue because my mind didn't go contemporary at all. It only went historical. I, yeah, and I'll, I guess I'll present it this way. From a historical standpoint, it was the absolute wrong thing to do because of the fact that I think from a marketing standpoint, it presented to its consumer base that this was going to be more in line with Super Mario World without truly defining what it what it's actually utilizing from the previous game in its marketing strategy because i felt like at the time in nintendo's history when it was especially promoting yoshi's island is that it was promoting this as this entirely new experience but not really fully explaining how there are elements of super mario world in it that make it feel like an evolution from the standpoint of it being the first super nintendo title to practically the last in terms of its release date but I also feel like historically it was the right thing to do because it would, I mean, just simply put, it sells more. If it's called Super right. Mario 2, people are going to know it and they're going to be like, okay, yeah, that's something I know. I like Super Mario World. I'm going to buy it. So from a historical standpoint, that's why I think it's a yes and no. From a sort of contemporary and modern context, I say no, because obviously by the way that we're talking about it, there's so many different elements that I think make it distinct as its own individual title that obviously calling it Yoshi's Island just makes more sense because we don't really think as much about Super Mario World, especially when talking about it in this context. But my argument why I do still think right now calling it Super Mario World 2 does make sense is because that there are elements of it in which it feels like there's an evolution specifically in the physics, the engine. You know, you have Yoshi as a main character that was a it was very like vitally important to Super Mario World that I don't know, like I do kind of see it as a sequel 
specifically. Mm-hmm. And I always, it's almost like I'm at the point where I can't separate, not can't separate the two because I see Super Mario World as my introduction of what the console can do as an introductory standpoint for Super Mario World to this is how far they can push this console. And it's in the vein of Super Mario World in a way because of the fact that it utilizes a lot of the same properties from that. So my argument with it is that I could see both, I just see both sides of it. And if you were to sort of tie me down and ask me which to go with, I guess maybe (laughs) I would just go with no because, you know, it is just, it is, at the end, there are just so many things very different about it. But I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to really solidify my position on it. Yeah, uh, it's a difficult question for sure. I mean, the fact that it's a prequel, the fact that it's so different, uh, the fact that the title's really long, Super Mario World 2 Yoshi's Island is just a mouthful. Yes, that is so say. long. <laughs> and when you look at the cover art, like it's just so weird to see the full name in the American version. Yes, oh, definitely. Uh, Yoshi's Island is a nice little little tidbit, but I think for sure from a marketing standpoint, They were banking on more people know Mario than know Yoshi because Yoshi had previously only appeared in a couple games, whereas Mario had appeared in several. So uh, it's yeah, it's an interesting question. But going on Yoshi's Island, of course, on Super Nintendo ended up not being the only Yoshi game, nor the first Yoshi game because there was Yoshi Cookie, right? Yes. Uh, Which is it exists, Uh, but it's a thing. It's a thing. But serious context, I wonder if we could get some thoughts on your development of the Yoshi series. Now, I just want to yes. say that I have to bail on that subject because I've played a tiny bit of Yoshi's story. Uh, I've played Yoshi's Cookie or Yoshi uh, and I played Yoshi's Island, obviously. Uh, other than that, I don't know that I've played any other like Yoshi series games. Um, so. Maybe you say you started with Yoshi's story. Maybe we can yes. get some of your thoughts on that in brief and then any other any other Yoshi games that you've played. So, yeah, like I said, the first console that I fully embraced was a Nintendo 64. And one of the earliest games that I played was Yoshi's Story, I believe. That was the name of it. And my experience with it at the age, I think I was like six or... I think I was, God, I was young. I was about six or seven when it came out. Was that... It was a very colorful, funny, lighthearted experience that at the time in which I played it made sense. My entire issue though, and I say this with the entire Yoshi series as a whole, is that I felt like people so greatly misunderstood what made Yoshi's Island such a magical experience that it put the developers in a position where they had to water down a lot of the aspects of the gameplay, the sound, the design, to sell itself the Yoshi brand as just kind of being cute. Mm -hmm. And that comes at the expense of the gameplay experience because I've actually revisited Yoshi's story recently. And I will just be completely honest, it doesn't even hold a candle to the experience that I feel that you get from Yoshi's Island because Yoshi's Island while being incredibly cute in its design, is a very, I don't want to say difficult, but a very complex experience in terms of utilizing how it is that you have to go about playing it. How do you beat it? How do you go through these levels? There's so much more interaction with the environment, I think, in a very, just a geometrically sophisticated way that that just wasn't the case in Yoshi's Island. 
because I'm going to be quite honest, I felt like the hardware for the Nintendo 64 didn't really bring out what made Yoshi's Island so special on the SNES. And I've recently played Yoshi's Crafted World, which came out on the Switch. Right. And I think it is a, a really, really underappreciated masterpiece in the Switches, in the Switch catalog. Because I felt like it sort of came back to not its root, but like tried to tap into, you know, if you're going to have simple, let's say, gameplay design, like you have some complexity in the actual world building or just the way that I think you can interact with the environment that makes it more memorable. I really enjoyed my experience experience playing Crafted World, but every single Yoshi title that has come out just doesn't feel anything close to the, I don't want to use the word aura because I feel like that may sound pretentious, but just the feeling Mm -hmm. that one gets in imagination and scope as you get with Yoshi's Island. And I don't know. I feel like, again, it took Yoshi's Island took a lot of effort and it took a lot of time that even I don't fully understand how they made it work the way it did. But those are generally my thoughts and feelings on it. I think that I don't want to make this seem like what you just said is trite or anything, but that that would be what I would expect you to say. I think Uh, Yoshi's Island just from an outsider perspective, I mean, like I played a demo of crafted world, never played uh what is it? Woolly world. Um, yeah, I never did that one either. Yeah. I'm looking at a couple of these games. Like there's, there's a decent chunk that I've never played, but it still seems to me that Yoshi's Island is still the special, you know, gem in the crown. Uh, having played Yoshi's story, I feel like it was, like overly sweet i don't know yes yes it is definitely and i felt like it it's because again it's the way that it from a marketing standpoint if you're going to present yoshi as this very cute sort of cute marketing like it's going to appeal to a younger demographic it sort of came at the expense of sort of the accessibility of actually having the players use a lot more thought process into completing those games as a comparison mm. to Yoshi's Island. Because Yoshi's Island, I'm sorry, I still think is a difficult game that is accessible to players at any age, but no matter what age you go about it, you have to really pay attention to so many different specific elements of its design, its sound, its just its visuals. Where with Yoshi's Story... When I played it as a kid, I felt like I kind of just breezed through it. And when I sort of touched it again, I felt like I was doing the same thing. I was just kind of breezing through it and just not really absorbing the experience as well. Yeah, when I played it via emulator in college, Yoshi's Story, I I felt like, where's the game? (laughs) A little bit. And I don't know. Absolutely. It's one that I've really wanted to visit just like normally and just try to experience. But... It is what it is. Uh, It's interesting then. So I think this is the second or third time you've brought it up. The idea of there being multiple things to manage. When we talk about difficulty in games, uh, it really comes down to what the game asks of the player, what it demands of the player in some instances. Some games can be loud and yelling uh, what they demand of the player. Um, But I think that in Yoshi's Island, I agree that there's a lot that the game demands of the player. 
So it's interesting to me that in that interview I mentioned with the developers, they were specifically thinking in terms of how to make platformers newcomer friendly. And so they thought of things like Yoshi doing his flutter kick in the air uh, to give him more maneuverability in the air and therefore give the player more control over jumps uh, that Mm -hmm. they believed that that would make it more newcomer friendly. They also removed the timer. I noticed that was a big one. Oh, for sure. I mean, because you play the first Super Mario uh, and everybody just kind of takes their time the first time with that game. I still remember the first time the timer ticked down and the music starts going faster. and like, oh, no, go, 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 go. And then you start making mistakes, right? Because you're under. Yeah, exactly. But I noticed this last time playing it, uh, there's no overlay. There's no points. There's no lives display. There's no timer. There's no item box on the screen. It is, and and that's probably part of its intrinsic beauty as well, is that you're just looking at the game's, like, graphics in this. I mean, all those other things are graphics as well, but you're just looking at the game world itself without any of those intrinsic gamey elements uh, being there externally. I think you just brought up probably one of the best points that I didn't even think about is the fact that when you are going through Yoshi's Island, your attention is not going to be on displays like sort of health meters, timers, anything like that, that forces you to have to interact with the environment in a different way. So as the game evolves in terms of its just how you have to go about a situation of sort of defeating an enemy, how you have to have Yoshi run up in a way that you don't think about. You're not looking at things. The only thing that I feel like you're depending on in that situation is your experience with that level, like in its environment, which I've never, you're right. I've never experienced that before, especially in a Mario game. Because of course, like when you get to the point where if you're taking your time and the timer goes off and all of a sudden you're rushing, your entire experience is that you're just rushing through the environment. You're not looking at all the little details, nuances in the background and foreground or the enemy or the sprites. But with this game, they're so damn proud of what they were able to accomplish in that style that it, it puts you in a position where I feel like it forces you to not just have to interact with it, but kind of appreciate it because it makes you have to think about it. If you decide whether you connect with it or don't connect with it is one thing. But I feel like in terms of how it's aged, the fact that it really strips all of the elements of what considers as being gamey, you know, just with the timer and just the health bar and everything. I mean, obviously we'll talk about, you know, baby Mario in a second, but it just <laughs> makes it feel purely unique because there just there wasn't even another Yoshi game that did that. Yeah. Is the weirdest part of it. Yeah. The only thing I can think of is that timer that ticks down when uh, when you don't have Mario on your back, that's like the yes, only yes. on-screen display. But other than that, it is it's completely absent of that sort of. I don't know if that's UI or whatever, but there's none of that's there. And then letting the player slow down. Very interesting point that you made. That that allows you the time to appreciate, uh, and also it affords exploration because now. Oh, I can backtrack and I can, you know, scout around for secrets and, you know, those little uh, 
hidden floating question mark clouds that could be in little corners and things like that. And it, it really lets you, you know, find those keys and backtrack for those secret doors and all sorts of thing that, that just all sorts of things that just opens up uh, different kinds of level design. That's it's not just move from Absolutely. point A to point B at like, you know, a goal screen, but it's explore all that's in between all of that. So even as a kid, I felt like the levels in Yoshi's Island were humongous, even though yes. they're really not that big, but you just they feels feel that you can spend so much time there. Yeah, they absolutely they always do. feel big. And I think also again with Yoshi's Island and I just I know it's not the first game to utilize foreground as a means to sort of create scope in a particular spot that you're in. But because of the fact that it's utilizing this really special chip that's able to bring out sort of visual assets that you just won't see in a Nintendo game, just seeing how much level of detail and complexity right in front of your face in terms of like a stone sticking out or just like a butterfly flapping. And then you have Yoshi right there. And then you just see like this like beautiful, and I got to just stress like some of the backgrounds that I've seen from that game, from just like just sunsets to just waterfalls, forests. It's just, it's crazy because at the, in the current moment, I feel like you can slow down and appreciate it, but I truly don't even fully grasp it until after I'm done playing it. And that's like the big reason why I'm on here talking to you about it. Because every time I think about the game, every time I think about it, it's just like, wow, I didn't even think about that part and how it made me feel or how, you know, just groundbreaking it is as an experience. Hmm. So wrapped up in the experience itself that it it takes that time afterwards when you're done, right? To sort of unpack yeah. it in your brain for sure. Absolutely. That's definitely a thing. After the thrilling success of the Gaia Seed Kickstarter, transmedia company Bifrost Bridge Studios has turned its sights to Patreon. Through their crowdfunding campaign, you can gain access to the page-by-page -page graphic novel blending neurodiversity with utopian ideals, their science fantasy tale, Gaia Seed, as well as high-res digital content and rare physical content, even awesome retro gaming gear such as we've been giving away on Wednesday nights on Twitch. Help build the future by encouraging technical literacy and empowering young voices by visiting patreon.com forward slash Bifrostbridge Studios. Link in the description below. Uh, well, another aspect of the gameplay and really it's, it's proud uh, display of its graphical achievements are the bosses. Uh, these huge yes. confrontations. And they really are huge. I mean... <laughs> They're, I would they, say it's not an exaggeration. Yeah, the game emphasizes a sense of scale with each boss, literally, by taking a lot of the times a regular enemy and comic comes around and sprinkles a little fairy dust on it, and it grows to an enormous size. And I feel like that sheer enormity is another element of how impressive this game is. Right from the very yes. first boss, Bert the Bashful. Where his, yep. his pants fall down as you hit him, but he's just a huge balloon. Uh, there are so many great bosses in this game. What are some of your favorites? Um, well, I got to say that the final boss in particular, yes. when you're doing Bowser, and it's you just see him so menacing in the background and just coming closer and closer and just you having to utilize all the skills you have at your disposal to figure out exactly what you have to do. 
is definitely to me one of the most memorable final boss experiences in in, in any video game. But I hate to say this because I know it's probably not going to be the most impressive answer, but when I think of just the first time playing it and just doing that first boss, which you just talked about, and it's not a difficult boss. It's not, you know, there's nothing, it's not trying to do anything so simple, but you get that scene where you're introduced to what it's a uh, God, I'm saying the chemic and you just see him just like go back and forth on the screen and just see him just become huge and all of a sudden, like, you're introduced to the element of, like, okay, I've got, obviously, these eggs, but, like, how do I use them specifically in this instance, in the situation where the edit with the boss you're fighting is just so much bigger than you? And you get to see it on screen, just, like, him become just, oh, God, it's just, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's truly remarkable, me, yeah. It's not hard, though, and it's not difficult. And it's something that I always mm. respect about Mario games is that people critique the fact that the boss fights are not too difficult, but I feel like a lot of that is done on purpose because the fact that it doesn't want you to have to backtrack too much. It wants you to have that sense of finality when you get to the end of a level and you don't get hung up too much on the boss fight. But I'm curious, like, what your favorite boss is? Well, um, I mean, I got to say the final boss, again, is just... I feel like we have to set aside the final boss because it's just so good. I mean, the change of perspective from... Yoshi looking to the side to now looking into the background as a Godzilla sized infant Bowser marches towards you is super impressive. I mean, Absolutely. I remember when I first had the game reaching that boss at home, I stood up and was just like shouting because it was so amazing. Yeah. Impressive. Uh, the music of the digga 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 Oh, yeah, and the soundtrack. Oh, God, it's just... Fantastic. I mean, but saving... So I made this point the other day. There are RPGs that do not have boss music as good as Yoshi's Island, which is kind of stunning. Which is weird to think about. Right, yeah, it is. But there are so many creative bosses in here. I really loved the... The Piranha Plant boss, Naval Piranha. Yes, Naval um, Piranha. Sluggy the Unshaven, which was that uh, that transparent slime that had the heart inside of it. Yes, yes. Super creative because it's like, okay, you can't just throw eggs at it five times and then it's dead. You have to penetrate that slimy body and connect with the heart. That's yeah. just, I mean, again, visually just really impressive. But also, I'm going to say, oh, go ahead. I was going to say boss, I, well, I forget which boss it is, but the one with the potted ghost, where literally yeah. like, you're pushing it. <laughs> I know it's like so easy in comparison, but there's such a level of humor of just yes. seeing the animation of the ghost just like freaking out, like him like realizing you're figuring out how to actually beat him by just simply moving his like vase and just yeah. having the little guys try to push like against you. Like it's just, I remember yes. laughing so hard <laughs> when doing that boss fight. Again, is it particularly difficult in comparison to others? Definitely not. But I just, oh God, I just such a memorable experience. Yes. The shy guys pushing against you on the other side of the base. That's again, so much personality, so much. Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to have to go out on a limb and say favorite boss fight besides final boss is Raphael, the Raven as a prototype for Mario galaxy, where you're running around you yes. know, a planet or a planetoid. But that is such a, a really cool use of the super FX two chip. 
um, where you're fighting a boss on not a platform, but a tiny, tiny little planet. Uh, and again, grab yeah. me to the moon. It's in the title. So exactly. And just also the background of, again, the just sort of highlighting of like where Super Mario Galaxy is going to be getting its inspiration from it. Because I feel like at the point when you think about Yoshi's Island, it's still very much grounded in its environment, just in, you know, the world itself. But when you do the particular boss fight with um, the Raven, you're put in a position where it has all, all of a sudden this sort of cosmic scope to it that I feel like, I mean, I don't, I'm sure I couldn't fully appreciate at the time because I played it when I was older, but just seeing the way the chip is able to shift like the perspective and you're just looking at the, like the background of the stars and all of a sudden it's like on your left side and the clouds are on your right side. It just really promotes this sense of, wow, like my entire understanding of how you can view an environment in a game can be just shifted so easily, effortlessly and seamlessly. Yeah. From a programming standpoint, it's just how do you make that transition so well? Yeah. Uh, the, the, the shift of physics. Uh, there is a there is a trope in game design where you change the physics up for a boss fight. And that's absolutely an example, uh, but I think a, a darn good one. I think there's oh, examples absolutely. of where, you know, they introduce a new mechanic just for a boss fight or change up the physics just for a boss fight where it doesn't quite feel natural. But this is one where it creates a center of gravity in the middle of this tiny planetoid. And it it's instantly one of the most remarkable boss fights in the game. Agreed. hundred uh, percent. Because agreed. of that staging. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. Okay, well, let's move on here to the big talking point. Sound design. Oh, Retro yes. Rex said, great game, except for one thing. And Retro Rex did not have to say what thing that is. We all know what it is. We right. all know what it is. When you talk about Yoshi's Island with anybody, uh, eventually somebody's going to say, eh, 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 eh. The, yes. the Mario Cry iconically infamous now before we unpack that couple statements here uh from our good friends when it, uh, a gamer looks at 40 again said i'd like to formally start the campaign to stop complaining about baby mario's crying we all accept metroid's beep zelda's heart chirp and a dozen other you're about to die warnings all of them are annoying but for some reason baby mario is universally loathed personally i think the baby mario cry is genius it makes this tense sense of panic because I truly believe we are wired to stop a baby from crying. It's not supposed to be enjoyable. It triggers action. And if you really hate it, there's always a volume knob on the TV and retro mm -hmm. gaming dev says everything about the game was top tier. I know crying baby Mario is annoying, but excellent, but good incentive to not be hit. Boom. Now that's it. That's it, right? I mean, I already knew you were going to agree with those statements. Oh, there's more I have to say about it, too. Oh, go ahead. I'll yes, please do. So please do. I'm going to say that a gamer looks at 40. Is that the one who said who just said that? Completely nails everything about the aspect of why the Mario Cry, to me, is one of the greatest sound designs in video games. I will be the first to admit that when I first got into the game, I wasn't a fan of it because obviously of all the internet humor that was involved with it in terms of the fact that it just 
put yourself in a situation where, God, it was just so stressful all of a sudden. You get hit by something and you're just hearing this like piercing heart and really just heartfelt sound that creates, at least in me, it created a sense of panic. And at the heart of, I think, Yoshi's Island is a really heartfelt story about a baby, you know, trying to get home and like you being a person that is doing everything at its disposal for someone that you're carrying on your back. I mean, that's not just an analogy. I mean, that's literally what it is. And if you can't create that connection, then the whole motivation of why this game works or why this game is happening is completely lost. And I don't know, like when I play Yoshi's Island and I really think about just how unique that Mario Cry sound is, like it can make me emotional and really raise the stakes of like, man, I don't want to be hit. And I think (laughs) for me, from a development standpoint, that was done incredibly deliberately because it has to build motivation for a game that has no dialogue. There is no dialogue. From, well, I mean, there is dialogue, but there is no like over-complex story in which Yoshi and Baby Mario get to connect with each other by talking. Mm-hmm. Like That's completely out the window. So how do you create that connection then that makes the motivation of what Yoshi's doing feel genuine, even for a Mario game? And to me, entirely summed up with the Mario cry that you can just sense from your experience playing the character, like, yeah, if I hear that, I need to react immediately. It could be positive, it could be negative, but it always creates the reaction. Yes, exactly. A couple things I want to say on it. Uh, it's probably more universally loathed because it's imbued with personhood. It's, I mean, obviously, I mean, you play a Zelda game, uh, the original Zelda, and you just get that pop, 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 pop when you're on low health, and it doesn't stop. That's pretty annoying. Uh, yes, it is. But <laughs> but a baby crying may be, as a gamer looks at forty points out, one of the most like fundamentally alarming sounds that we're just wired to be like, stop a baby from crying now, please, uh, because you know we're we're built towards protecting the next generation so that our species can survive but i want to say that maybe yoshi's island hits a little differently uh as a parent when i first played it honestly i wasn't a parent when i was a kid now that i have kids the last thing i want to hear is a baby crying and i'm sure people with no kids are like the last thing i want to hear is a baby crying also but like I mean, I've been I've had sleepless nights where like a kid is just crying all night long. So it is in that regard, one of the most effective. And here's something. OK, you you totally said it. They said it. It is one of the most effective bits of sound design maybe ever. But yeah. That doesn't mean that you have to like the sound. Right. Yeah, so perfect. like that's I, it. Yes, I've heard people make it sound like, well, how could you possibly like the sound? It's like, it's not like I like put on Mario crying for 10 hours on YouTube. Exactly. And there's a video for that. I found it. (laughs) I used it to like, oh, God, I do believe it. Yeah, it's out there. I mean, so you could just listen to like over and over again for 10 hours. You can. 
But I don't think anybody wants to hear that sound. But the fact that you don't want to hear it is what makes Yoshi, who is essentially immortal in this game, he can't be killed uh, unless you fall in spikes to get a game over or something like that. But the only way to lose or fall in a hole, the only way to lose is other than those those ways is for Mario to run out of time and the toadies come and carry him away, which what mm-hmm. is more horrifying than the thought of like a baby being kidnapped like that is. Yeah, exactly. That's like the ultimate nightmare, certainly for a parent, like the ultimate nightmare. Of course. And it's difficult to imagine, you know, a more heinous crime, but obviously they exist. But it's 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 fundamentally. And so, like you say, you know, there's no dialogue between Mario and Yoshi. You have this very silent dynamic between them. But Yoshi is that that perfect protector, that that mother slash father figure here for a helpless baby that just needs to be reunited with his twin brother. So it's not like it's, you know, drama or anything like that. Um, But I just think from a design perspective, it is so effective. It really makes you want to get Mario back. Of course it does. And I, (laughs) again, and it's it's a human connection. You hear a baby cry, you have a reaction to it. And I feel like obviously as you get older, that, reaction becomes more sophisticated and mature as it is when you're obviously, you know, I imagine not a parent as a teenager or growing up. And I feel like there is something that just feels so fundamentally human in the experience of Yoshi's Island in the fact that the motivation is just to try and reunite a baby with its twin brother, essentially. And the fact Mm. that it utilizes that through its sound design specifically and just really simple sound bites that are so iconic that you can still talk about them 25 plus years later tells you that it worked. And I'm sorry, there's a lot of sound effects in games from that era where if I listen to it, I could just laugh my, I could just laugh because it just so doesn't feel genuine in a sense. But Yoshi's Island sound effects, particularly even with Mario's Cry, just, I think to me, establishes motivation and also brings out the life in the vis- in a visual sense of the world that, again, it's like I can't separate anything from each other because it's just so much just one unit mm. specifically. I don't know. It's just, it's insane for me to think about what this game really accomplished. Maybe. And you know what? I was actually having a conversation earlier with a friend. Uh, Vox Geyser. Vox, if you're listening, this is for you. Uh, we were talking about the term masterpiece, right? And and he was sort of frustrated that masterpiece gets thrown around a lot. Uh, I've talked with people who have been frustrated by that. I've talked with people who don't believe there is such a thing as masterpiece because the term is so overused. Um, mm-hmm. I personally, I think masterpiece can just mean, you know, the work of masters at the craft. And that's, yes. that's a thing. I mean, if it's skill that improves through practice, eventually you reach the not perfection, but eventually you reach a point where you've mastered a craft. It doesn't seem that outlandish. Now, all of that said, maybe what we're talking about here in terms of what is a masterpiece uh, beyond just the work produced by masters. It's maybe something in which it is complete. It's whole in that all of its parts work together perfectly. Uh, perfection is also a concept that people have a difficult time with in game discussion, but perfection can just mean whole. 
It can mm-hmm. mean something in which there's no element that works against itself. Like, so one element that I like to talk about a lot with games and the way that they tell stories is games. A lot of the times are horrible with pacing in trying to tell a narrative. Like you cannot expect me to be invested in your story in the same way that I'm reading a novel or watching a movie, for instance. Uh, If I stop and grind levels and do chores and complete side missions for 50 hours and then come back to the story, there's just no way. Like that's not how pacing works. So that's a challenge for sure. Uh, what masterpieces might look like in that context. I don't know right now because we're talking about Yoshi's Island, but as far as Yoshi's Island is concerned, perhaps the simplest, uh, least complex are those which have the most potential to be whole because there's less working parts. Um, yes, that's a lot of word vomit there. I'm sorry, but, oh, but um, I, I agree, but I'll get to a second. Yeah, no, no, go ahead. I want to hear your thoughts on that. I really think you summed it up in which you, to me, if you're going to classify something as a masterpiece, you have to have the element that the people who are working at it have dedicated enough of their own life and labor into it that it feels almost perfect in comparison to the work that they've done prior to it. It's not a stretch to me to call Yoshi's Island a masterpiece when you take it within the comparison of how it evolved from the original Super Mario Brothers from the 80s. Because a lot of the programmers, directors, and designers came from those projects in the 80s. And it really felt like there was an evolution that then led specifically to that point. And the thing that you just mentioned that I absolutely agree with is the idea that if it's something to me is going to be, let's say, a masterpiece, pacing usually is the big thing. Because it's mm. able to take specific elements of it, break it down into a more, and it just break it down in a sense it doesn't have to over-explain itself, but still possess so much nuance and complexity that it's like, wow, it feels like it just does this so seamlessly and so well. Which is, again, like I feel like a lot of games that try to be a masterpiece want to try and show its image as like, look, we're something much more sophisticated than we actually are, where with Yoshi's Island, like it doesn't present itself as wanting to be a masterpiece. It doesn't mm, have that. It, it doesn't, it doesn't have that image in its design where it's like, at the end of the day, it's like a baby Mario on a Yoshi, like going through a colorful world. And it just never felt like the game took itself I mean, the game took itself incredibly seriously, but it wasn't designed at its core to have even a conversation in a way of what we're doing exactly right now. But we are. And that's to me why I classify it as a masterpiece, at least in my opinion. Because the fact is, it really was just trying to show an evolution in a series in a much more gradual way. And just simply put, have the players enjoy the process. I feel like Yoshi's Island is not the prototypical Oscar bait. You know, yes. it, it, yes. it just it is what it is. They came up with a unique idea and they're like, we're just going to do this, but as best as we can. And that's OK for a masterpiece to exist in that context. Now, speaking of like really masterful stuff, like at this point, Koji Kondo composer had done quite a few soundtracks, but yes. then bringing all of that experience to the fore here created and a, a really amazing soundtrack. So sometimes, you know, I, I, well, not sometimes, but I always bracket now a Magecast episode with two pieces of music 
obviously credited to the original creators. I didn't write this music. This music's fantastic, but it's there to be appreciated, to be discussed. Um, this is a, an episode that I had a hard time just picking two songs, one to open, one to finish, because there are so many excellent yes. tracks and so many different tracks in here. You have the, the sort of the waltzing castle music. You have the, for me, the favorite was the uh, flower fields music. Which to me is the most iconic one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think pretty sure that's the one that I'm going to pick to start, but then to finish, I was like, do I do the athletic theme? Do I do the underground theme? Do I do a boss fight music? There's just so much good in this soundtrack. That's light and, and fun and upbeat and energetic. You know, the, the, uh, the concept of the athletic theme uh, is is a is a running concept in Super Mario game design or music design rather that Mario is what they originally thought of as an athletic uh, an athletic action game uh, and so that that tradition has kind of been carried out through that but that I feel is that kind of music it's music that that moves uh, that moves with the character as the character moves forward through these stages. Um, so there's a couple comments here on, on the music, but I just want to get like your general sound on the, or general sound, <laughs> general thoughts <laughs> on the soundtrack, not sound on the thought track soundtrack. I think thoughts. Koji Kondo. I mean, there's obviously I'm not going to be the person to say something that's already clearly obvious that I think he's practically the greatest video game composer of all time. If not, obviously one of the best, but I think for a, a video game composer to truly create something that is inviting and truly pinpoints all the complex layers that defines Yoshi's Island, you need to bring something to the table for him to work with. Like, as for example, like you got to give Koji Kondo footage of the game without the music and let him sort of see for himself, like, okay, these are the specific musical cues that I want in this instance. And something that I think is really crazy about the soundtrack is the fact that it is so incredibly catchy. It has this almost like carnival theme to it where it's just almost like you're at a circus and it's just so inviting, but mm -hmm. also really, really nuanced, especially like when you get to like the underground themes where it's like, da 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 It's just these sound bites mm -hmm. that, and yeah. that it's just layered on top of each other where I can't get it out of my head specifically like at any instance when i'm thinking about these games and it's so interesting because it's so hard to really pinpoint like you say one specific title which also makes it i think contributes to the reason why it's underappreciated in a lot of mm -hmm. sense because it doesn't have that like that one theme that just totally defines yoshi's island i mean you could say the flower theme maybe maybe the overworld music but every single track that I would listen to it just got me into the mindset of complimenting me having to think about this game in a more complex way which is what you want from to me a video game soundtrack you are listening to sounds that's making you make not just making the world more believable but it's making you have to think and it's not just obviously in the sound design that what you hear specifically but just the way this music repeats itself in certain instances it just feels so seamless and yeah god i i didn't even think about that i mean i was obviously was thinking about the soundtrack but like trying to think of even just tracks just 
again, like I'm always one of those people where it's like to me, the music in the first world, especially for a Mario game, has to practically be perfect. That's got to be uh. the centerpiece. <laughs> and just listening to that sound, like da 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 dun, as like that introduction, got me hooked for the entire game. Yeah. And I mean, that's just how I feel about it. Yeah, it's a sunny afternoon in music, essentially. Question here from Duct Tape said, how about that level select instrumentation? Uh, to contextualize, Liam Tune Fan 1 said, I love how the map music gradually changes the further you go into that into the game. So that's the yes. you know the overworld that but it adds new layers as you go along. Uh, really nice little touches like that. Remind me of in Mario World when you jump on Yoshi's back, suddenly there's percussion in the background, right? With the, like the bongos or whatever. And then when you jump off, the music turns back to normal. Uh, little dynamic changes uh, in the way that the soundtrack is used is, I think, an, an, an excellent touch to a lot of these kinds of games. And Fitz Retro says... Okay, I really, really just like the way when you lick a hard surface or wall and the sound effect changes slightly and Yoshi's tongue wiggles. <laughs> yes, I didn't, I didn't even think about that until I read that. It's so right, true. Right, that's a thing. It's so seamless, but you don't even think about it. But that, when you lick something hard, <laughs> tells you, oh, okay, I can't eat this. Again, it's just all about sound cues in that game. Everything just has some sort of either visual or sound cue that then makes you in a split second, think, okay, I can or can't do this, or I should try this differently. Again, incredibly difficult to do, but complemented also with music on top of it. It's just, God, it's just, it's just the full package. And I, I didn't even talk about just the entire overworld, and especially, like, I hate to say, like, the music, the the map, the, like, when you first turn on the game and you just have the entire island just rotating. Oh, yeah. And just just that sense of scope and with the music in the background also to me like what made me realize that this was going to be a different experience for sure than any any snes title that i played before yeah that title screen is really impressive uh just the the rotating island fantastic i it really sounds like we've praised this game to high heavens it's yes, a shame yeah. i mean i mean it's a shame to to ask somebody, oh, put it on mute if you don't like Baby Mario crying because the sound design is just so good. Um, even that little spring effect when Yoshi jumps, it's it's so just lovingly lavished with design. Yeah. Uh, but as we near the end of this episode, some audience questions, final audience questions. And BT Dubs, if you want to ask a question or share a comment to get a mention on the show, then keep an eye out on my Twitter at the Wellred Mage, where I announce the topics for each Magecast episode in advance and invite you to help enrich and shape the conversation. A final couple questions here. Uh, here's one from Heroes of Gaming Podcast. Have you ever held select and pressed XXYBA while on the world map screen? Now, I tried doing this on my uh, last playthrough on stream, and I guess my select button just is not working. So I didn't get to experience it. Uh, do you know about this little? No, I have, I'm actually not 100% certain what he's referring to, but it's definitely something that I'm going to be trying immediately as soon as I'm done with this because oh, I feel like I should know this because I've definitely looked up trivia for this before. 
Yeah, so this is something that I don't think I ever knew about. Uh, it looks like it triggers a secret two-player mode. Um, I looked it up earlier today because I could not, for the life of me, remember. Uh, you know, he's telling me to do this on a, on the stream, and I was like, I don't know if I've done this correctly. But I guess it triggers a two-player mode where you can play some of the mini games uh, with a second player. So that's pretty cool that that exists in the game. Yeah. Uh, Oops, platforming here says, I love the art style and a great question. Why don't we see more of this coloring book art style in more modern games? Uh, that's maybe too broad of a question, but can you think of, of other like sort of coloring book games like Yoshi's Island? I mean, the problem is it's hard for me to even think about it in the context in which Yoshi's Island is utilizing a very specific chip that's not only making it an art style like a coloring book, but a very distinct coloring book based on the hardware that it's working off of. I just primarily think that it's hard to market games that look different from other games. And I feel like the amount of labor that is involved to try and promote a different art style, a more colorful art style, requires having a sense of direction that also has to be supported by the company that's paying for it. You know what I mean? That mm -hmm. has to then yeah. market it. So I'm wondering if that definitely plays a part in it. But yeah, I don't know why they're... In a way, it is sort of mysterious. And I mean, Yoshi itself doesn't... The games after this doesn't really look like it does with Yoshi's Island specifically. And there's a lot of questions I have that may... Like of why that happened. But I mean, it's a, it's a good question for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think that more broadly, you know, we can think of games that have hand-drawn art styles. Uh, Cuphead comes to mind for example, but it's difficult for me to think too, is there like a coloring book, like a crayon coloring book game? I'm sure there is. Cause there's like, you know, like hundreds of millions of games in existence. Um, but there are many hand-drawn games at least that, uh, that adopt that same uh, perspective of creating hand-drawn illustrations. A uh, question here from Reels Games. Is the T-Rex in Mario Odyssey a Yoshi? Yes or no? Have you played Mario Odyssey? I have played Mario Odyssey, so I okay. definitely know what he's referring to. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I'm just... I don't know. I mean, it is kind of interesting, though. I think that was one of the most confusing things about Odyssey for me when I first saw it. was like, wow, it has a it's dinosaur, like a but it's not like a Yoshi? It's like a yeah. realistic dinosaur? <laughs> I'm just going to fly... I'm just going to answer the question and say no, because... Yeah. I don't. I really don't know how other way to think about it. But trust me, when I first saw that in the trailer, when it was first announced, I was like, "No, wait a minute! I thought they already had dinosaurs like for this whole time. Is this a way to like downplay Yoshi here?" Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna say that the Mario Odyssey T Rex is more Yoshi than the Yoshi that appears in Super Mario Brothers of the movie. Okay, that's true. That is a good point. <laughs> 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 and a final statement here from trash Lavinia, I think a great way to cap this podcast, uh, who said my favorite Mario game as well. That's referencing, uh, myself. I said, this is potentially my favorite Mario game. Uh, and he said, probably my second favorite 2d platformer of all time for me. I don't know if it's my two favorite 2d platformer. Uh, that might be Mega Man X, but Yoshi's Island might be my favorite Mario game. I think some days of the week, yeah. if I'm in certain moods, I'd be comfortable saying this is my favorite Mario game. 
Uh, other days of the week, there's some really good ones. That's the problem. I mean, there's so many great Mario games out there. It's difficult to pick just one. But Yoshi's Absolutely. Island is something special. I think to me, Yoshi's Island is the greatest 2D Mario game that follows in the evolution of the other 2D Mario games that fall before it. Whether or not... It's hard to tell because, again, my evaluation is the fact that I've played the other Mario games at very different ages. I played Mario 3 and Mario Brothers originally when I was still a kid in the 90s. So my experience with them is definitely distinctly different with Yoshi's Island that I did not pick up and play until I was much, much older. But based on, I think, even just the discussion we're having right now, I couldn't talk about the other 2D Mario games as much as I can talk about this one, which to me is why I'm kind of classifying it as, I guess, a personal favorite of mine. Hmm. That is well said. I mean, so crit man, what an episode. I, there are, I I love this. I gotta say, I really (laughs) love this. There are games dude. And you know, when it's coming up on mage cast, I'll wonder, is there going to be enough to say about this game? Cause I mean, like everything we've said, Yoshi's Island isn't humongously complex from, you know, a player face facing perspective but there's so much to say about it and there i feel like we still just scratched the oh absolutely the iceberg and i just want to point it out i do realize that we didn't bring this up and i feel bad we didn't bring up the power-ups in which you know yoshi transforms into like you know a mole (laughs) and you got baby mario with a cape and i just want to say those power-ups are absolutely iconic I don't feel like we can have enough time to get into it now, but that's definitely something that I know. I don't want, I know someone might comment on that. So that is yeah. something I'm also, no, I'm glad you, I'm glad you raised it. The helicopter all the way, not a exactly the mole oh. tank, uh, the watermelon seeds. Yeah. is really oh, the, the fire and the ice watermelon seeds. And then the green one, that's just delightful. Sheer delight. I don't know who had that idea, but they were probably like designing the game and they're like, we need some power ups and somebody's eating watermelons. Exactly. They're just, they're just spit, like, all right, let's go for seeds. it. Like, yes, you just gave me the idea for machine gun watermelon Yoshi. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are those are great, definitely. And I love the superstar for uh, for Baby Mario. It's nice to see the star uh, used in a different way. So it's like yes, it's invincibility, absolutely. but also, oh, you can run on walls and stuff. Exactly. It just it yeah. changed the entire formula that way. Yeah. Man. Well, uh, Criterion, my friend, where can our listeners find you? Um, I mean, I guess the two main ways that you can find me is on Twitch. My name is Criterion27. I usually play retro games during the week, mostly on the weekdays, either in the afternoon or in the evening, 1 o'clock Eastern Standard Time or sometimes 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. I've actually been dabbling into playing Breath of the Wild, which is actually my first playthrough of the game on stream, which has been interesting, but... You know, I guess if you want to follow a stream that like tries to have discussions definitely in the matter in which we've been discussing it today, that's where you can find me. Or you can find me on Twitter, Criterion27 on Twitter. And, you know, I'm trying to use that more to kind of promote the stream itself. So, I mean, those are the two places you can find me. And yeah, if anyone wants to, you know, send me a message on Twitter, send me a message on Twitch, gladly respond or critique. I would say if you need feedback, I'll take that too, because it's my first time (laughs) doing this. Man, write a book already, dude. You're so like thoughtful person. Like you gotta, you gotta get some of these thoughts down in a book or something. I know, I do. I gotta, I gotta try. <laughs> 
It was great chatting with you. I appreciate you being on the show. And again, I appreciate all the encouragement. Um, it's it's just been a delight meeting somebody who um, who appreciates the finer things in life, I think. Oh, absolutely. And again, I just want to thank you again for, you know, having my first podcast experience be someone who, you know, I've looked up to and followed for so many years. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to have a conversation with me on a game that I didn't even realize I was going to have so much to talk about. So I think (laughs) in the future, I would love to have more discussions with you on a variety of games. But I think this was definitely just a perfect first introduction for the two of us. Yes, folks, let me know if you want to hear us talk about uh, Earthbound Beginnings. I think that would yes, be Yes, I would say. I'm going to need to beat it first. So pray that is me. true. That is true. Because <laughs> that's a tough one. It is a tough one. Thanks so much for listening. I hope your life was enriched by this conversation. Don't forget, you can help support MageCast by visiting patreon.com forward slash thepixels, or you can check out our headquarters, thepixels.com. That's the-pixels.com. Please do leave us that rating or review if you like. Really help out the show. Thank you. This episode may be over, but the legend will live on. Passed down by the dwarves, the elves, and the dragons. 